fourth string. So if, if you are a visitor, I beg you, please come back because uh, our pastor is uh, definitely one of his spiritual gifts is speaking. Mine, not so much. I, I tell people I like to teach. Uh, preaching is something that I inherited with working at a church, obviously. But I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in church. I was born and raised in church, and I was taught at a young age how to present the gospel. And one of the tools that we used for presenting the gospel was a gospel tract. I meant to grab one and bring it up here, but I think if you've been in church long enough, you kind of know what I'm talking about. A gospel tract, it was simply just either a trifold or a front and back uh, that explained the basic points of the gospel. And there is no end to the number of these, ranging from the type that we have, it's just no nonsense, kind of give it to me straight, just some informative, and then has the gospel on the back. And then you've got versions like the creative adaptation of cultural icons. I found a few that I wanted to show you if you aren't familiar with gospel tracts. This first one, Ken, uh, was a great one. They had, well, this is one as well. Do you have the Monopoly one? You have that one? Okay, this is like the cultural icon. How many of you have ever seen this one? Like the get out of hell free. I remember this one as a kid. And I used to love this one. I was a big fan of Monopoly. Used to play it with my aunt and uncle and parents. And, and this was one you could give. And it's kind of a cutesy take. And then has the gospel on the back. Then there is the one Ken showed. Like the fake $100 bill one. Y'all see that one? And I, I knew people that how many waiters or waitresses do we have in here? Anybody? We've got a few. Okay, don't ever give these to a waiter or a waitress. You know, I, the one that I had seen was like a $10 bill, and when you opened it up, it said disappointed. Well, yes, I think that is the worst way ever to present the gospel to a waiter or waitress. They see it, they're like, $100 tip, oh my goodness. And then they're like, I will never go to their church ever because of what they just did to me. Uh, or they've got like the in-your-face tracks. Okay, how many of you are familiar with chick tracks? Have you? Okay, you've seen those. I used to love these because they were the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, honestly, you open them up, and my kids had never seen one, but you, you open them up, and they've got like all of the demons inside. And I was looking through all of the different tracks, and I'd pulled up their website, and I was reading some of the tracks. And my six-year-old son came over. He's like, oh, what is, that is scary. What is it? I'm like, oh, it's nothing. That's how you present the gospel. And those kind of ranged from a lot of different things, like the demons persuading you to listen to Christian rock music or conform to Catholicism or something along those lines. Those are for the hardcore people. You know, you've got the chick tracks. But we learned how to give these tracks. Okay, that's great, Ken. We learned how to give these tracks to waitresses or those seated next to us on planes if you're familiar with it, especially if they look really nervous on the plane, like they're in takeoff or landing, if they're gripping their seat tight, you're like, this is a great time to talk to them about eternity. So you start to talk to them or you give them the track there. But if personal interaction made you uncomfortable, you could even deposit these tracks stealthily. And one of my favorite places that I've ever seen tracks deposited, go ahead and throw that picture up there, public urinals. And if you are a man, you have seen this before. And Whoever came up with this idea obviously didn't think that most people don't want to handle material that has been in or around possibly the dirtiest place 
on the planet public restrooms. So, you know, if, if interaction scares you, or they even said sometimes when you're returning movies to Blockbuster, you could put them in like the VHS cassette and that would be great. Or even some, uh, I, I've seen other ones where you go through a drive-through and you pay for the person's meal behind you and you give the track to the person working the drive-through and say, hey, give this to the person behind me. So you don't even have to see the person but you've gotten them the gospel. And then one guy I remember in college, we would, uh, he told me he had it planned out perfect. Downtown Chicago, people would stand next to the street waiting for the crosswalk. He said, man, I've timed it perfect where I can go the right speed and you can drop them out of the car and they land right at their feet. You know, I wish I was making some of this up, but I'm not. You know, if, if someone asked Jesus into their heart during a gospel track presentation. That was essentially the entire premise of it, was to get to the end, present the gospel, and then get them to pray a prayer at the end. If somebody asked Jesus into their heart during a gospel track presentation, there were a number of things that you were supposed to say to them, printed helpfully on, for us right on the back of the track. You were supposed to place an emphasis on Bible reading, prayer, and church attendance. You were also supposed to say something like this. Now that you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are saved forever. You are guaranteed to go to heaven. He promises never to leave or forsake you, and no one can pluck you out of your Father's hand. So from here on out, you are saved no matter what. Welcome to the family of God. They thought to shake their hand and go on to the next house. That's essentially how I was taught to present the gospel. But did you know Barna Group, Barna is a research group, Barna did a study in 2011 that shows that 50% of Americans say they have prayed a prayer just like that. And subsequently believe that they are going to heaven because that's what they have been told. However, half of them have no regular presence in any kind of church. About the same number think that the Bible is wrong about a lot of what it teaches. And two-thirds have lifestyles and worldviews that in no way differ from those outside the Christian faith. These people have heard the message of Jesus about the need to be saved and come to Christ, and they think, oh, I've been there, done that. I've prayed the prayer, been to the class, been, been baptized, or confirmed, or whatever. I'm good. My grandma was there. It was super meaningful. That's what you'll hear from them. But what I want to show you today is that the Bible speaks frequently about a kind of faith that is superficial, that doesn't go very deep and doesn't save at all. The tragedy is that for a lot of people, their superficial faith has immunized them from the understanding their need for the real gospel. Now, how does immunization work? And I'm not, I see like some nurses and doctors and everything, so I'm going to try not to butcher this. I tried to, you know, immunization. Uh, I think everybody's pretty familiar with it, and they've got different, they've got vaccinations and inoculations and immunizations, and you know, I was doing some research on it, and it made me remember I teach history, and one of the early forms of immunization happened to come around our nation's birthday. You know, it came with the Revolutionary War and George Washington's, and you had the influx of Europeans coming in fighting, and they brought smallpox with them. And George Washington, I, I liked telling this story because it's, it's gross, how this happened, but uh, my class were always like, oh, especially the junior high girls. But when you go into it, you know, George Washington kind of came up with an early form, and because smallpox, uh, his troops started breaking out with these smallpox, and they were disgusting. It would actually be whelps, and they would ooze with, like, uh, the bacteria and, like, a pus, and it was gross. Well, George Washington, I'm sure he had help, but he would go through with his soldiers and actually make incisions on their arm he would scrape the sores of the soldiers who were infected and then rub it 
on the open sores, the cuts that he had infected, and it essentially saved us from losing the war because they began to become immune to this disease and it strengthened our regiments. But immunization is when they inject you with just a little bit of the disease, usually a dead, impotent version of the disease, so that your body develops antibodies so that if you are ever exposed to the real thing, you're resistant to it. That's what happened with these people. They've never get infected with the real gospel. And in this case, infection is a good thing because they have been immunized by superficial religion. You know, these people often can't believe in Jesus because they don't see the need to come to Jesus. I want to show you how Jesus addressed them. So in scripture, John chapter 2, verses 23 is where we'll start. And we're going to talk about the religiously immunized. This is your can't believe group. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Here you have a group of people that believed in Jesus. They were, they were the spiritual elite, and Jesus would not give himself to them because he could see that their faith was superficial. They believed in Jesus, but here Jesus didn't believe in them. He knew what was in them, and he could see their interest was a fleeting interest, a convenient belief. In this case, where you've got the religiously immunized, praying the prayer is a convenient belief because nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants to escape this fiery place where worms eat you and and your body just burns forever and ever. So it is a convenient belief. In their case, it was because they had seen the signs and they were temporarily impressed, curious as to what Jesus might do for them. In our day, it might be people who believe because it's their background. It's the kind of home you were raised in. It's what your parents or your friends believed in. If someone asked the average college student nowadays, are you a Christian, their normal response would be, well, yeah, I'm not not a Muslim, you know, I'm I'm not Jewish, I'm not an atheist, so yeah, I, I suppose I'm a Christian. That's their answer. There's a group he's describing here in chapter two that believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. So write this down, the first point that I gave you, the dangers of superficial belief, the dangers of superficial belief. John chapter 2 is not the only place that this occurs. You know, it's a scary thought because there's a section in the Bible where at the end of the times when you're standing before God, he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And it says many will come before him. And when you look at this and you think 50%, but Matthew 7, it says these are people who prayed prayers and went on missions trip. You know, a lot of people go on missions trips, they work on a bus route, they work in kids' ministry, they do all of these things, and they're showing this like this is their spiritual belief. This is what is, they're basing their eternity on. In Luke 8, parable of the seeds, you know, they got excited about faith, they sprang up, they grew quick, they looked healthy, and then they withered away and died. Maybe they brought others to church, and there was explosive growth, and then if you started kind of, they started reading their Bible, joined a small group, and then when you read the passage, they kind of die away. You know, who is that talking about? That is talking about this religiously emphasized and these religiously immune. 
Jesus is, David Platt, I, heard, I like David Platt, he's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama at Brook Hills. He said, Jesus is not talking in Matthew 7 or in John 3 about irreligious pagans, atheists, or agnostics. He's talking about deeply, devoutly religious people who are deluded into thinking that they are saved when they are not. He's talking about men and women who will be shocked one day to find that though they thought they were on the narrow road that leads to heaven, they were on the wide road that led to hell. People who believed but were not born again. Again, in your notes, write this down. 50% of Americans say they have prayer to prayer asking Jesus into their heart. And even though half of them have no regular presence in any kind of church, two-thirds have lifestyles or worldviews that in no way differ from those outside of the Christian faith. If passages like John 2, Luke 8, and Matthew 7 are not describing that group of people, then I don't know who in the world they would be describing. People hear statistics like the ones I gave above that 80% of people call themselves Christians. 80% of people call themselves Christians. 50% claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but less than half actually live differently because of that. And they say, see, Christians are hypocrites. That's why people say, see, Christians are hypocrites. I can't come to church. Christians are hypocrites. You know, but what I read is something different in those statistics. What I read is that there are a lot of people who think they are Christians and they are not. You know, the question presented in John chapter 2 is what kind of belief saves? This is an eternally important question. And do you have the kind of faith that is superficial or the kind that saves? You know, we have created a culture where millions are comfortable calling themselves a Christian when they are not disciples of Christ. You know, this is staggering. We are talking about the independence, and I love what Dustin said, where we live in a country where we have unbelievable opportunity whenever it comes to our religious faith. And those opportunities are, are dying each day, and we need to understand that. While we have the opportunities, why are we not taking advantage of this? You know, we create a culture where we're comfortable calling themselves a Christian. It's a normal thing for an NFL player to score a touchdown, point to the sky, and everybody applauds it. I mean, that, that's great. People make three-pointers, and they point to the sky. People hit home runs, and they point to the sky. And it is a popular thing. It's popular for uh, pop icons to say, yes, I'm a Christian. You know, I believe. But their lifestyle in no way shows what the gospel is really teaching. Is it possible that this is you? Are you this group described here in John chapter 2, starting in verse 23? So that leads us to number two, a description of saving faith. A description of saving faith. Chapter 3 is the answer to the question presented in chapter 2. You know, remember there's no chapter break in the original writings of this book, so it just kind of goes right into it, which means the story at the beginning of chapter 3 is the solution to the problem that is raised at the end of chapter 2. If these are people who believe in Jesus that Jesus does not give himself to, then what kind of faith saves? We'll look at verse number 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So you've got to realize... This is Nicodemus coming to Jesus. He is a ruler of the Jews, which means he is the spiritual elite. He is the one who is running things. He is a deacon. He is an elder. He is a Sunday school teacher. He is an assistant pastor even. He is a head pastor. He is one of the higher ups 
in the Jewish religion. The same came by night by, to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. See, that's tying him back to verse 23 of chapter 2. He was one who saw the signs and believed. So in verse number 3, Jesus answered and said unto him. That's, that always, that's funny. I was taught to really, Jesus answered and said unto him. Where's the question in this? Is, is Nicodemus even asking a question? That's what's so amazing about God. Because he answers questions and solutions that we don't even know to ask. So he comes and he answers the questions and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, born again is a familiar phrase to us. Um, I'm, I could be off, but I think it was like President Jimmy Carter when he came in. He really made that phrase popular. You know, be born again. And you had Jimmy Carter had strong Southern Bible belt roots, a Southern Baptist, stepped in, Christian man, deacon in his church, and he made that phrase born again kind of into a popular thing. But old St. Nick here was very unfamiliar with that phrase. So he asks a very naive question. So he asks what we would have asked if we had never heard it again. In verse number four, Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, it sounds initially like this is just a smart aleck response. You know, like, what am I going to do? Be born again out of my mother's womb? But you've got to realize Nicodemus has seen the signs and wonders. He understands that God's hand is on this man, Jesus. So he's asking, you say born again, you're not one to really joke around with people. How is this going to happen? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Genuine saving faith turns on one phrase, you must be born again. Write that down. Genuine saving faith. I'm not talking about superficial religion. I'm not talking about what your aunt or uncle or grandparents or mom and dad. This is you. This is a personal account. Genuine saving faith turns on one phrase. You must be born again. You see, Nicodemus was a religious man. And Jesus was telling him that despite all of his good works, despite all of his learning and church attendance and religious ritual, he was dead in his sin. You know, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. The gospel is bad news before it is good news. And this is where most people miss it. You know, they, they will never really grapple with the bad news, but it's where Jesus started his gospel presentation and where we must start too. He starts with the bad and leads into the good. You know, our sin cut us off from God and left each and every one of us spiritually dead. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve severed their connection with God. You know, sin is the I problem. Next note, sin is the I problem. I spoke in College Chapel last year, and I, I kind of told them the root sin to everything that we encounter, every other sin is idolatry. It is the I problem. It's the lowercase s, the capital I, the lowercase n. That is how you spell sin, with a capital I. Sin is the I problem. I want to be in charge. 
I want to serve myself and have other people serve me as well. I want all the glory. I want to be primary point of mine and everyone else's life. You know, we can laugh at other religions. I teach like a history of civilization class and we look at other religions and we look at idolatry immensely. And you can think about Buddha and you can think of this little fat man that people worship and they, they look at, and I'll have some students ask, how are people so stupid? How do people worship these wooden idols or these fake gods? And I say idolatry comes in a lot of different forms. Americans just have a more sophisticated form. We have Apple, we have iPhones, we have social media, we have entertainment, we have sports, we have hobbies, we have relationships, uh, we have immorality, sex, whatever it is, the idols of Americans just come in a lot of different packages. We don't bow down literally in front of our iPhones, but that's where we spend all of our time. We don't bow down in front of the TV and start worshiping, but that's where we spend hours a day. We don't bow down and start worshiping Hollywood, but that's where we send most of our money. You see, idols come in a lot of different forms, and that is the I problem of sin. You know, the path that Adam and Eve started down in Genesis 3, and it's the path that we all have. You know, uh, voluntarily, and we continue down, we are born in a state of rebellion against God. It's nothing that we have control over. I want to be in charge of my life. I want the glory and attention. My agenda, my interests are much more important to me than God's. That choice left us as a race condemned under a curse of death. That's what God had said. If you sin, you will die. Death is at work in our world, and I think we understand that. Death is at work, and we can see that all around us. Can't we famine, pain, disease, uh, injustice, genocide? We can feel it in ourselves, corruption, weariness, dysfunction, death. Yes, there's still a lot of good in the world, and we're still physically alive, but think of it as the way like a watch face fades after being cut off from the source. One day when our bodies die, we face the full manifestation of death. It's completion, hell. You've got to realize that we are all under condemnation. John chapter 3, verse 36, simply says that the wrath of God abides on our race. John says in 3.20 that we are lovers of darkness. Paul says numerous times in Romans, in Romans 1.21 through 28, that our minds are blinded. He says in Romans 1.26... We are disordered in our emotions. He says in Romans 1.24 that we are naturally curved in upon ourselves, defiled in our bodies. You know, Paul in Ephesians calls us children of wrath. You know, this is the bad news of the gospel. He is telling us how rotten we actually are. In Ephesians, the children of wrath, he says that the law of death is at work in our bodily members in Romans 7.24. And then Genesis 6 says that all of our thoughts are only evil continually. So all of the time, the thoughts of our hearts are evil because Adam and Eve severed the relationship with God. You know, that's why we must be born again. You need to realize sin didn't just knock us down to God's JV team. Sin completely wiped us out. It didn't knock us down to a lower form of Christianity. It didn't knock us down a couple rungs. Sin completely knocked us out. It didn't put us on probation or a slower track to heaven. It completely wiped us out. Sinful flesh cannot hope to see the presence of God. In our sinfulness, we could no more hope to stand before God and hope to see his kingdom 
than a wilted dandelion could hope to withstand the blast of a nuclear bomb. I heard a man say that, and it really kind of puts it in perspective. If we stand before God with kind of our sinful flesh and hope that it will be appealing to him, hope that it will get us somewhere with him, we, it, we don't stand a chance as a wilted dandelion in front of a nuclear blast. You know, you're not going to hear this verdict on humanity on Dr. Phil or Oprah, and I honestly kind of stay away from it because it's completely against it. If you, if you go to Books A Million or Barnes & Noble, the largest section you will find is self-help. That is the largest section of books, self-help. Help get fit, help to get out of depression, help to get out financially, help to uh, be successful, you know, idiot's guide to everything. You know, everything is self-help. Because we try to do it ourselves, but this is where Jesus starts the gospel, and it's where we must too. Our sinful rebellion against God was infinitely worse than most of us have ever imagined. You know, Francis Schaeffer, one of the country's greatest apologists and theologians, was once asked, what would you do if you met a modern man on a train or a plane and had just one hour to talk to him about the gospel? One hour for the rest of his life, what would you do? Schaefer replied, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead, then I'd take the last 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness which is true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt fillings in the presence of God. You know, we are presenting Jesus as the answer, but people all across the world in this city don't even know what the question or the problem is. You know, Jesus answered Nicodemus. He answered the question. Nicodemus didn't even know what the problem was. He didn't even know what the question was, but Jesus answered it. We present this as this glorious thing, but people don't even know why they need it. People don't even understand what the point of it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, you must be born again. Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he'll never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus' reference to flesh and water is most likely a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I'll read those for you. You don't have to turn. Verse 25 says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. And ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. You know, we need to be washed. We need to be made new. That's what this is saying here. And I'm not talking about sprinkled as a child. I'm talking we need to be washed. And that only comes with salvation. We need a new heart that desires God. And I think the easiest way that I can explain a new heart that desires God, I'll use Josiah as an illustration. I'm not going to tackle you like your dad did last week. Don't worry. Let's say Josiah was not feeling well. Uh, he was sick to his stomach. He had some bad Taco Bell last night. He started feeling nauseous, and all of a sudden, he throws up just right up here at the front of it. I don't think that I would have to one time. I, I would hope that there's nobody in here that I would have to tell you. I know Josiah has just thrown up, but it is a rule of gospel light. You cannot come up here, get down on all four knees, and start licking it up. We just don't allow it. 
You're going to have to leave if you start doing this. If, you, if Josiah's throw up right here, you come up, you cannot do it. I don't think I have to say that. Why? There is a natural desire in your heart not to do that. You understand how that works. There is a natural desire. Not because it is a rule I just gave you, but because that is what you desire in your heart, is to stay as far away from that. God's not just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience, an obedience that grows from desire. So often, we've been trained to not do things because it was a rule. Not to not do things because we desired a closer, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel has a lot of guidelines, and, and we start following them because it's a rule. We lose track of, of how we're actually supposed to, and that comes with washing. If you look at John chapter 3, verse 14, we'll pick up this story. We skip a few verses. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You know, this kind of ties back to Numbers chapter 21 verses. It's just four verses, four through eight. As the people of Israel were headed into the promised land, they forgot the kindness and goodness of God to them, so they started to get impatient, to doubt God, to complain, and their hearts started to wander after other gods. Always, this story always kind of intrigued me when I was growing up because I, I like to play the Bible out as like a movie in my mind. I start to see how would this actually happen. I was a big Indiana Jones fan growing up and with like the pit of snakes and I could just imagine like the vipers coming through and, and they started to get impatient. They started to doubt God. This is really a picture of all sin. We doubt God, disbelieve him, grow dissatisfied with his ways and our hearts wander from him and serve other gods. We essentially say, God, I'm not satisfied with you. I need romance. I need money. I need comfort. I need status. So God sends fiery serpents into the camp. The Israelites started to get antsy. They started to become dissatisfied. So God sends in these fiery serpents. Vipers of death everywhere, thousands of them. The people begin to wail in pain and they cried out to God. You know, this is a picture of the curse of sin. The pain of the brokenness of life. You know, just talking about snake bites, I referee basketball. And last weekend, I... Uh, was at a referee camp in Forest City. And one of my good friends lives in Paragool. He came down, and we were at this basketball referee camp, and he was still kind of limping a little bit. And I'm like, man, I said, Ron, what happened to your foot? He said, the darndest thing. He said, I got bit by a snake. He said, I was with my son. Ron's probably in his 50s, so he has a grown son. His son, Ron was carrying everything out, and they were going out on the, their boat for the weekend, and Ron had his hands full of towels, and I think the cooler on top. Well, he's carrying this, and he's got on water shoes. You know, water shoes, rubber on the back, and kind of a neoprene mesh on the top. And he's walking down his driveway out to his truck to put this stuff in. He says he stepped, and it felt like a wasp stung his foot. So he kicks his foot, and this snake slings off of his foot. He said it was about four weeks ago. He said, it was the weirdest thing too, he said, because when I saw the snake, he said, it was a baby snake. He said, it was probably only about six, eight inches long. He said, I really didn't think that it was anything. He said, it hurt. It felt like a wash thing. Hurt immediately. He, his son was over there. His son went over and killed the snake and got it. And his son is in the military and he's at home on furlough. So he was going out. He's like, Dad, he's like, man, they, they tell us if you get bit by a snake, you need to go in. And he looked at the snake, and he said, Dad, I think this is poisonous. He said, I think this is a copperhead. 
And Ron, being like the tough macho man that he was, he was like, nah, I'm not going to go. You know, he is just a farmer from Paragould. He's like, I'm not, I don't need to go. He's like, Dad, you need to go to the hospital. He said about halfway to the hospital, they brought the snake with them, you know, thinking the hospital would need to know what kind. And they walked into the hospital. They had the snake. Initially, the hospital was like, is it dead? They're like, yes, of course. He said, you would be shocked. People bring the live snake in thinking that we need venom to make like an anti-venom. He said, we don't do that type of thing. He said, we, we don't do that. He said, we've had people come in. They try to suck the venom out. They've seen the movies. And he came in. He said, immediately. He said, within an hour. He said, his foot was swollen up like a softball. He said it started to turn black and blue. And he thought, man, I thought I was in, in luck because it was a smaller snake. He said they're actually the worst ones. He explained that he said he got a crash course in snakes while he was at the hospital. He said the small snakes don't have any discipline on how much venom to actually release. He said the larger snakes will bite and then release just enough venom to possibly kill their prey. The little ones, it's all or nothing. So he said, I got the full dose. He said, it was worse than any sprained ankle, any torn ligament. He said, my foot swole up. He said, turned black. He said, luckily, he said, they kept me overnight. He did not get like an anti-venom. He said, those things are pretty brutal. I think it's like $30,000 or something for it too. It's something crazy. He said, I didn't want my foot that bad. So he held off, he held off on it. So, uh, you know, I imagine, and whenever he said that, it, it made me think of, hey, this kind of fits in. I could just imagine that's what the people of Israel were, were going through. You have these little vipers, and I can just imagine, they're probably not your huge, like, python ones. They're just small enough to really pack a punch and really hurt. Well, he starts sending it through. So God in mercy tells Moses, people wailing in pain, People going through all of this, there's no Advil or aspirin, anything along those lines. They are in pain. So in God, with his mercy, tells Moses to make a bronze image of one of the serpents and put it high up on a pole at the top of a hill. And he tells people that if they get their eyes on that serpent, what happens? If they get their eyes on that serpent and look at it in faith, believing it will heal them, they will be healed. So imagine people riling in pain grasping, crawling, and desperation to get a view of this serpent. So Jesus says at the completion of verse 14, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he, he likens Moses lifting up the serpent to Jesus being lifted up on the cross, and I never understood that. I'm like, why would he depict a serpent like, everybody's least favorite. Everybody avoids snakes. Why would, why would he place his perfect, sinless, spotless son as a serpent instead of, like, a lamb? You know, Jesus, like this image of the serpent, would be lifted up on the cross for our sins so that all who look to him would be saved. And it confused me, bothered me, when I first learned about it. Why not a lamb? But then I realized that the serpent was the result of their sin. What Jesus did was take the serpent unto himself the day that he died on the cross. We had sinned, but the viper of death bit Jesus. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He became the serpent, and that's why he was put up on the pole, because, leads us into verse 16, which is possibly the most famous verse of all time, for God 
so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's so loved, you can't get past that. He loved him so much, his only son became the viper for us. You know, Charles Spurgeon, I, I used to teach a college class, influential people throughout Christian history, and Charles Spurgeon was one of my favorite. Just an amazing man. In his biography, and I'm gonna read a little bit, so bear with me on this. I'm gonna read a little bit of his biography because he tells a little bit about his conversion experience, and I thought that it was so fitting for this message. Charles Spurgeon, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now. Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed in, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obligated to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look into me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. He may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he says in a broad Essex accent, and I don't know what that is. I can just imagine. He is like deep Arkansas, like country twain type preacher. You know, he is, he is your country preacher. He gets up in his broad Essex accent. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it is no use looking there. You'll, find, you'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look into me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look into me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look into me, I'm dead and buried. Look into me, I rise again. Look into me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. He could think of nothing else to say. Then he looked at me under the gallery and I dare say with so few present, he must have known I was a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text, 
But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I knew not what else he said. I didn't even care to take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one bot. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. And the simple faith which looks alone to him, oh, that somebody had told me this before, trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered, and now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. I loved that story. I used to tell in my class, it's just the look that saves. That's the whole theme of John. Behold the Lamb of God. See him. Just look at him in faith and live. Now today the choice is yours. I mean, honestly, no one is stopping you. You can look whenever you want. You need to look, the next note, you need to look because you are dying. You need to look because you are dying. Like the children of Israel, we've been bitten by the serpent. All we need to do is look because we're dying. Like the people of Israel bitten by those vipers, you, you don't need a moral improvement. You'll hear a lot of things nowadays. You don't need a moral improvement. You don't need a religious booster. You don't need a fresh start. Or you don't need to even turn over a new leaf. The wrath of God is upon you. The curse of death is over you and at work within you. That's why I've never really been able to get a word away from the word saved. You know, and I hate to even admit it, I never really even liked the word saved. Um, it just brought back flashbacks of like a pudgy preacher up here, like the white handkerchief, sweating profusely, screaming at the top of his lungs, you need to be saved. And I always thought, oh, you know, it, it's just what I had always heard. But, but when you think about it, to be honest, I don't really even know if there's a better word that you can use. You know, helped, improved, enhanced, come to Jesus and be enhanced. I don't, I don't think that really gets the point across. You don't need that. You need to be saved. We are dead in our sins, continually dying, and that is our only hope. That's why it bothers me when, when people say to me, Jesus is just you know, a crutch to you. I want to laugh and say crutch. Jesus is not a crutch. Jesus is my stretcher. Because I'm not limping anywhere. I couldn't even limp into heaven without Jesus. I was completely wiped out and carried by his grace. Let me again quote David Platt. What we don't need is superficial religion. We need supernatural regeneration. We are dead in sin and we need to be born again. You know, there's a superficial belief that keeps people from real faith. It works like an immunization. 
And maybe for some of you, that's, that's what you've had. You've prayed the prayer, you've walked the aisle, checked the card, raised the hand, went to the class, you've done the whole thing. But have you been born again? Have you been infected with the gospel virus? And again, this is just a metaphor, for this is a good virus, it's life. It is a life-giving one. You need to realize this. You know, a virus, especially a significant one, changes you. When the gospel goes to work in you, it changes you too. Your mind used to be filled with thoughts of self and lust and pride. Now, holiness and a love and desire for God is at work. I don't mean to imply that you're perfect or you never have to work at it or you sit around and think about God all of the time or that you hop out of bed each morning and strumming Chris Tomlin tunes and, and just thinking how glorious things are or keeping a harp beside your bed. I'm not, I'm not being weird, and we need to understand this, but there is life at work in you, and you are significantly different. Your spiritual temperature is raised as your passions for God go up. You start sneezing out blessings and generosity all over people. You are contagious spiritually other people are attracted to your faith i tell my small group i hope that each and every one of us can go out each day and somebody see something different in our lives because the gospel is present in it we've been infected with it is this you or are the people at the end of john chapter 2 a better picture of you you know you believe in jesus but it's not a belief that has changed you or one that can withstand persecution or hard times at being alone or temptation you don't really walk with God. You believe in him, per se, but there's no relationship there. You don't really know how to even talk to him. People ask you, are you a Christian? Yes, but you can't even explain to them when the last time you even spent any time alone with God. That's the people at the end of John chapter 2. And I'm afraid that as we live here in the Bible Belt, we have created this culture. We're in the South. You know, is it true... If that's true, that you don't walk with God and you haven't per se, then isn't it clear that you have the superficial religion described in chapter 2 and not the supernatural rebirth described in chapter 3? Or imagine this. I've given this illustration before in College Chapel. Imagine I was late coming up giving the announcements or welcoming you. Uh, Brother Gormley's in the back. We're waiting five minutes. My mom's getting ready to come up. I come running in, and I'm kind of disheveled. Shirts untucked, jackets dirty, you know, hairs messed. No, that doesn't, that's not applicable. You know, glasses are crooked on my face. I come in, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I'm late. Weirdest thing happened. I had to take the bypass this morning. I was running to get somewhere. And wouldn't you know it, of all things on a Sunday morning, I had a flat tire. So I had to stop, had to change it. In my rush, I'm getting the lug nuts off. I'm on the side of the bypass, getting the lug nuts off. Two lug nuts roll in the street. I'm not even paying attention. I go over into the street, bend down, pick up the lug nuts. Didn't even see it coming, but an 18-wheeler was coming on the bypass going 70 miles an hour, and boom, just hit me. Ran me over. 18-wheeler slams on his brakes, doesn't even know I'm underneath the car. Then he backs up and runs over me again. That's why I'm late getting here. I mean, nobody would believe that. They would think you were doing drugs. You were not uh, getting hit by a car. That's why you were late. If you were doing that, they would think I was out of my mind. 
But when you think about it, there's no way you can encounter Jesus and not look fundamentally different. We have a lot of people who say they've accepted Christ as their Savior, which is by far the most intimate, life-changing experience you can ever have. But the next day, they look exactly the same. They talk the same, look the same, think the same, act the same, and they think that they've just had this amazing encounter. Meeting Jesus face-to-face is like getting hit by an 18-wheeler. You're going to look different. You talk to people who have been alcoholics, and I remember my grandpa's story. Alcoholic for years, got saved and said he never touched another job. He said, was it hard? He's like, I, I accepted Christ. He said, I didn't have that desire anymore. He said, I've never wanted to anymore. That's what the life-changing rebirth is. And in the South, we've created a culture making people comfortable to be called a Christian. If that's true, look to Jesus. Just look of the true, surrendered, hopeful faith will save. It's that simple. It's nothing super complicated. It's not a magical prayer that you can pray. You know, last, last thing, and, and we're finished. This is why we are so driven as a church now to put emphasis on reaching people, on reaching the nations. Other superficial things we've kind of set aside. We're like the main thing is reaching people. You know, you think about the cultures all around the world and, and in looking at other cultures. This is what we do as we live among unreached people. We point up to the mountain of Calvary, saying up there, the one hung up on a cross, all you have to do is look to him. He's already done the work and live. So many religions have people working. You know, we study world religions in our classes and we start talking about like the Hindus, how they walk through Calcutta and it's a brutal experience and many times they will pierce their flesh with hooks and drag heavy objects behind them all the way down to the river Ganges and they will drag these things and by the time they get down there, they're bloody and they're bleeding and they're dirty and they're hurt. They will get inside of this river and wash themselves clean and they say, I've just carried my sin. We don't have to do that as Christians. Our sin has been carried. The blood has been spilt. There's no washing that we can do personally. Everything is done by Jesus. You think about Muslims, how they take their trip to Mecca, and they walk around this black rock, essentially, millions of them. And when asked, why do you do that? It's because we're hoping that one of us is worthy enough to receive salvation, that one of us has, has appropriated our life enough that we can be accepted. Christ is saying, I'll accept you, just look and live. It's that simple with us as Christians. Let's bow our head and close our eyes.